really is a founding work. It has to do with the founding of Athens and something that's happening in Athens. The Ritz um, represents something extraordinary in, our, in history. And all of you know Oedipus Rex. I'm not sure that any of you have read Oedipus Colonus, and I just think that's a huge mistake um, because most people leave Oedipus blind, <laughs> sadly. But he goes through this um, amazing experience through his suffering and comes out blessed, blessed, and um, um, assumed by the gods. So what I'd like to do is just go back and finish up that ancient world, and then I'd like to go to Shakespeare and, and take up some of the plays that we've talked about. I've already mentioned a couple. Lear, Lear and um, Pericles are the most important ones. But I thought of doing some other ones too. There's a couple of plays with women as heroines. Um, um, if we can do them, I think it would be good. There's two pro what are called problem plays that are very, very tough-minded on this question of um, justice and mercy, which, which you know I believe is the central problem that Christ left us with, how to, how to, how to, how to realize justice in love. Um, <clears throat> and I thought about doing the Henriad, um, Henry the fourth one and two and Henry the fifth, because Henry the fifth is probably the most extraordinary leader in all of history, next to King Louis. I, I think he, um, and Shakespeare didn't do anything on him, but um, but Henry V is is probably Shakespeare's best treatment of of a, of, a, of a virtuous leader. And you know, from most of the works that we've been reading, most of them are scoundrels or tragic heroes. I, I don't want to put the tragic heroes that way because I think they're all extraordinary men, but they have a tragic outcome. You you know, in my mind, I don't think that outcome's bad. I, I think it's good. Um, some awful evil is answered, but there's a cost to it. And Shakespeare had the courage to explore that. He, he didn't romanticize. He didn't look past evil. He, he, he dealt with it head on. So uh, we've, we've looked at a couple of tragedies, but, um, but I'd like to look at Lear and Pericles, and I'm thinking about doing Much Ado and Measure for Measure, plays that deal with justice and mercy. It, it's Shakespeare you know, in the best of in the best of his wisdom until he gets to those those later plays that I call sacramental. And then um, Eliot's go back to Eliot's four quartets. I know we've done them, but I, they're modern and I'd like to bring us into the modern world and I don't I don't know of how else to end it. And maybe doing a gospel, you know, Mark or Luke, a short gospel and um, Chesterton's Everlasting Man. That's that's my proposal. And when I look at it, um, it, it seems to me I, I don't know that there's anything more you know, I can offer in the way of the reading we can do, but that's my proposal. So write me, you guys, and let me know um, what your response is, okay? Um, Catherine wrote me an email and asked about um, Tolkien. It's really interesting. You'll, you'll, you'll be interested in this, um, Kathy. Suzanne and I have been um, watching The Hobbit, the series, and, and just enjoying it tremendously. For her, <laughs> for our entire life together, Suzanne has been pushing me, urging me to read Tolkien. I never have, never have. It's just, it's been too busy. It's, um, 
but I greatly love the movie, and here's one suggestion just to offer you guys. Um, the books are too long. It, it, would, it would be a real undertaking to take all of the, you know, the Hobbit and the Fellowship on. But one suggestion I do have is to ask you guys to read the book. I mean, we can commit ourselves to Tolkien for several weeks or a month. Have you guys read or watch the movies, you know, the three Hobbit movies and the three Fellowship, and then we can meet... Um, a couple of times to do the Fellowship and a couple of times to do the Hobbit. I think we could do justice to the three Hobbits and the three Fellowships in a couple of meetings each um, without asking everybody to read them because it's a lot of reading. But just think about that. Just think about that. Um, so those are some things to think about. Um, and I think that's it. I want to take a few minutes. Hold on. I'll be right back. Hold on. I've got a, it's, um, hold on, what am I doing? Um, four, is this four? I should have done this earlier. Yep. Um, no, 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 don't. Um, okay, you guys all got my notes today, right? In the, um, I, I, I um, sent three attachments with the with the email that I sent you, and I also dropped the outline in the blog box. Um, I'm hoping you guys are going to the blog box because I think the more visits it gets the more likely it's to keep his place in the blog. So I'm going to keep dropping those there. Um, um, but what I'd like to do tonight is is spend a few minutes um, going back and trying to finish up Billy Budd with some questions that I with I had. Um, sorry. I have a question. Um, I'm yeah, go ahead. So but I found a list that says prospective works in the making and coming up, and then there's a list. Right. But I don't. I don't go on the blog. I go to literaturesprophecy.com. Is that what you're calling the blog? Yeah. And then I go to content, and then right. I go to a box. Right. Right. This Sorry. This one is there. It's way back on the literatures prophecy page because I. I went too far, I guess, and I couldn't find this last week. I'm sorry, where did you get it then? Well, I got it tonight, uh, but it's it's in literaturesprophecy.com, and if you go all the way down and you click farther than that, you end up on this OneDrive.com, or I did. But I don't even know if I'm doing this right. Oh, Sue, I, I wish I had more experience with this. I mean, at the bottom of this, there is a, a St. Francis box. Mm -hmm. And if I click on that, it flips me into onedrive.live.com. Yeah, let me leave that. Anything recent. Yeah, listen, if I can, Sue, let me stop, because I'm, I'm absolutely in the dark. Um, okay. when, when I talk about um, sending things or dropping things off, 
I'm talking about dropping off things in the on that content page at the bottom. We have the two options, St. Francis and right. and under St. Francis, I've um, I've tried to organize it under folders under the authors and putting things there. So when we did Billy Bud, I there was a folder there. I don't remember where that thing was sent, but I'm not. Tr okay. I, I don't know how to answer that because I, think, it, I, I don't have an I answer. When I do that, it doesn't matter where it sends me. I don't have anything current in there. Last thing I have is in August. That's is correct. Is that true for other people? Yes. In the okay, so literature's prophecy? Yeah. I checked it today. I checked it today and they're all there. Okay, but the, the there is evidently not where I am because when I get to literature's prophecy, I, prophecy, I go down to the bottom, I click the St. Francis box, and I got things for a while. Last week I had a Billy Bud, Bud folder, but this week I can't even find that. And it, it's strange. I mean, what I have in there doesn't seem to make sense for what we're doing. Sue, let me, There's I can't, yeah, let me. Billy Bud, but, sorry. Sue, let me stop, because honestly I can't answer it. When I went in today, everything was in order as I knew it. I'm going to talk with Mike and and tell him what you've told me and ask him if he can help because. Okay. Wait a minute. I'm going to correct myself because I didn't click on Billy Bud when I was looking for this outline. But maybe it was in there. I found the outline finally, the, the, perspo the pers proposed thing, but I just found the Billy Bud discussion for today. I guess, well, I don't know. For the 14th. That's not today. Yeah, I, 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 so I don't have anything past the 14th. Mm -hmm. 14th is the last thing I uploaded. That was the, what Suzanne said was that was the last audio. There's two different things we're talking, there's two different things we're talking about. If you go on the literature's prophecy to the content page, it'll take you to the, all the authors we've done and the audios of those classes. If you go to the very bottom of that, you'll see two options, Francis and Seton. That contain, that contain the um, hard copy files of notes, outlines, and things that I've sent you on hard copy so that you can copy them if you want. Um, okay. So um, I, I don't know what to say beyond that because I just don't have the technical knowledge, but that's the way we set it up. Okay. So you can get to the, all the audios by going to the authors, Melville, Hemingway, Dostoevsky. Okay. You can go to the you can go to the bottom of that first page to those either one of those two sites to get the printed materials. That's a that's a different thing. And in in those sites, you've got folders um, of different authors to try to help organize the printed material I've given you. Okay. So it's an overview discussion of. All dot dot six hours ago. Right. Right. So there's a Fred and Francis suggestions. Right. Okay. Hey, Bob, Bob. Yeah. I might be able to clear this. Go clear ahead. This up go ahead. Real quick. It, it is OneDrive.Live.com that you go to after you hit St. Francis, and okay. then if you go into the Billy Bud folder. Everything okay, else is inside that. Okay. Okay, I, I think I've got it now, but it was just a strange. Yeah. Yes. It takes, it takes you to that OneDrive.com for whatever reason. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was just Billy Bud, and I'm looking for something different, and 
I still want to go back and say the literature prophecy page is where I found the list of possible next yeah. authors. Let's okay. let's. Doesn't matter. No, no. Well, it does. I'm glad you brought it up because I I hope that helps. Um, I think everything's pretty well organized. If you just go into the content page and down to the or you can go to whatever site for the audios, and then go down to the bottom to either one of those um, Francis or Seton sites and get the printed materials. Let's. I want to do a, a very quick review of Billy Budd and then I've got some passages I want to read to you guys and then I have just a couple of questions so we can finish up our work on on Billy Budd and then and then um, and then break for these really general questions that we've got um, if you've got those materials in the in on the blog site you you should have had three separate files um, Fred and Francis put to, together some um, questions that I, that I just thought were really just outstanding. They're really excellent. Um, there's a couple of others for you to look at, but let's wait on. I want to just right now. I want to finish up Billy Budd. Um, I wanted. There's no major issues that I want to call to mind again, but I want to. I want to say just one brief thing before I just re recount some of the major issues. One is, um, and this is on a personal note. Sorry for being so personal here for a second, but um, Melville's Billy Budd touched me from the first time I read it because I don't think I'd ever read a work in which somebody so revealed a part of myself to myself as clearly as that. This idea of the American Adam to me is, certainly for me, is profound because at least in for me personally, I'm speaking for myself, that was one of the great giveaway images in my life because I can't, I can't look back at my earlier life through the eyes of Billy Budd without seeing myself. This American innocent, this young kid who's, you know, personable, people like him, he likes them. Everything's good, you know, there's nothing to think about. Um, I, w I wouldn't have gone through the conversion if that were left where it, w where it was. But I, I, th I think that in this particular work, Melville's capturing something about the original innocence that I think so many of us start out with in life. It's certainly true for me. Um, and I, I, I was brought up in a Christian world. I mean, it was Greek Orthodox, so. But not in a reflective way. Reading that work helped me begin to reflect on that quality of innocence in me and how it played out in my life. So it was a really important work. So my gratitude for Melville on this one issue is really deep. I, I just think he's given us an image of something that's true for a lot of us, men and women, when we start out in life. Because I, and unless you're Catholic and you know you go through catechism, and you're asked to be reflective about things. I don't think many of us reflect on ourselves deeply enough to see something wrong. Tom, it's good to see you. <laughs> Can you hear me? Tom Kelly, can you hear me? Would you stop? Would you stop drinking for a minute and say hello? Turn your turn your audio. Tom, your audio. Turn your audio on. Or sorry, your 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 uh, your mute. You turn your audio on because we can't hear you. Anyway, um, 
We've talked about some of the major themes in the natural man, the difference between natural law and sacramental law, divine law. Um, I, I just want to underscore, because I'm going to read a passage from the, from the book in a minute. Melville's pretty clear that man in his natural state is inadequate to deal with the evils of the world. He, he just isn't capable. Um, he, he has to take seriously natural justice. And you know that, that at Melville's time, natural justice was conceived pretty much along the lines of the social contract theory. We've talked about this often. In a state of nature, man's at war. People are going to kill each other. It's exactly what's going on in the book of war, and it's exactly what happened between Billy and um, Clagger. In a state of nature, people are going to kill each other. Um, fear and pride drive what we do. If we don't enter into this social contract, if we don't accept that laws are important for us, and we're left on our own, we're given to violence. If you look at the world around us today, you can't miss it. I mean, you can't say of America right now that we're a lawful people. Right now, we're just not. I mean, there's a lawlessness everywhere. So those are some of the major themes that we've talked about. Um, and the major one that, that, I mean, the question that I asked last week is, um, <clears throat> was Veer right in what he did or not? Um, it, my, own, my own reading of the book, and I'm not talking about my personal feelings. It's one of the things I asked you guys to be careful of. I'm not talking about my personal feeling. I'm talking about what I believe the book says. And I think the form of the book vindicates Veer. Billy's innocent. He's a good young man. Um, he's innocent. He had no intention to kill Clagger. Melville knows that. He's not dumb. He knows that. If Billy were tried in a court of law for what happened, he would be convicted of second-degree manslaughter. He killed a man. Not intending, but he killed a man. At a time of war, when rebellion is you know, right off the borders, um, it's important to answer those things because everybody knew that if they didn't, they'd be dealing with rebellions. So, um, at least as I read the book, it seems to me the, the book vindicates Veer. It makes clear how heavy that decision weighs on him. Veer didn't want to do it. He had to do it. He carried Billy and him. Billy carried Veer. There's this, there's this sense in which both of them know it had to be done. Um, there was no self-pity. There was no whining. There was no blaming on Billy's part. There wasn't recriminations on Veer's. He knew he was innocent. It's one of those hard things that somebody has to do sometimes in life when you're dealing with a problem. I think that's the greatness of the book. If he'd come down on either extreme, it would have been a less valuable book, I think. <clears throat> one of the last questions I asked was, does Billy flower? Or is he left a bud? Is he still a bud? You know, incomplete. And I, I loved Kath, Kathy's answer. She said, yeah, and you know, she gave that line and said, when he said, God bless Billy Budd. No, Captain Veer. Sure, God bless Captain Veer. He flowered, that he was no longer a bud. He came into his maturity and bloomed because there's a Christ-like presentation of him. Now, hold on. I'm going to mute you all because I want to do some readings and I want to be careful of the sound. But anytime you guys want to jump in or interrupt 
you know, feel free. I want to do these quick readings, and then I have a, a, a couple of really Bob, important... You muted, Bob, you muted yourself. I did? How do I do this? Somebody help me. Mark, thanks. We can't hear you. Could you Can you hear me now? Okay, good. We've been together too long for you guys not to know how much help I need. <laughs> so, thanks. Okay, quick, quick couple readings. Um, if you've got your book <clears throat> handy, but <clears throat> if you don't, don't worry about it. On page 4748, this is what Melville gives us. Bob, could you do me a favor just read the chapter you're in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, your pages, sure. but I don't have your books. So just yeah, chapter. it's um, chapter 19, uh, um, a few paragraphs in, four or five paragraphs in. Billy's just struck Claggart, not intending to kill him. He didn't, he, it was instinctive to defend himself against what in his soul was an unjust accusation. And indirectly, I believe, Melville's showing us something that Christ did and that we learned from Dostoevsky, and that is, we, human, as human beings, we're, we're always presented with a real difficulty. We're called to justice. That's a serious call from Christ. I, I don't want to do anything to undermine that. Not at all. We're called to justice. But we do it knowing that so often, whatever justice we call on, that we invoke for what we're dealing with, will never completely do justice to a human being. Because every human being has a transcendent aspect to his soul. So even if a man commits a murder and he's sentenced to execution, I mean, let me put this as <coughs> starkly as I can, and he has to be executed. Should, in, in, according to retributive justice, he should be executed. Or, or let it not be execution. Let's say 25 years in prison. You know, whatever. We should know, according to our belief, that as just as that is, as important it is that he stand that sentence, I think most of us are called to believe there's something in him that justice won't touch. That was part of the teaching of Dostoevsky, you know, with Zosimov. Unless, unless we know that we're among the worst of the worst, we will never be able to bring a justice to others. We have to stand that way, whatever justice we bring. And what we saw at the end of Dostoevsky is everybody gets the justice wrong. Nobody, nobody's close to getting it right. So Billy committed a crime. He killed a man. Veer knows he has to stand, and because of the circumstances, he knows the only appropriate thing is an execution. Page 47, he, uh, remember, Billy has just struck Claggart, and then we get this. Is it's, he calls the surgeon in. Give me a few minutes here, you guys. I want to put a couple of things together to create a context for the questions I have. Um, he calls the surgeon in to, to determine whether Claggart's dead or not. And this is what happens. Is it so then, Veer says? I thought it, but verify it. Whereupon the customary test confirmed the surgeon's first glance, who now looking up in unfeigned concern cast a look of intense inquisitiveness upon his superior. But Veer, with one hand to his brow, was standing motionless, suddenly 
catching the surgeon's arm convulsively, this is Veer, who is so stoic, convulsively he exclaimed, pointing down to the body. It's a divine judgment on Ananias. Now if you remember your Acts, he says, look, if you remember Acts, the apostles had just begun to come together. Christ had died. They were beginning to form a, a community um, to carry out Christ's command, to, to, to form a new kind of community. We've talked about the importance of the city. Here's a sort of anti-city. It's a, it's a community in contrast. It's devoted to the common good and to carry out the mission of Christ. So they come together, everybody's asked to give up their possessions, to not hold anything back. Um, so this whole thing of capitalistic free enterprise and winning and, and excel is, is quieted. So they all sell their property and, and give a common property so that they can take care of everybody. But you remember this pair, Ananias and Sapphira, um, lie. And they hold some of their things back. And immediately, in the words of their line, as soon as they're spoken, when they commit that lie, they're struck dead. So, um, Veer is looking at Claggart as if Claggart were um, making an accusation that was founded on truth when it wasn't. He was telling a lie and was struck dead. <clears throat> so he says, it's Ananias, it's a judgment. So Veer is, now stop and think, because we've been talking about the importance of reading. Veer's reading this way, in a way, or the scene, in a way nobody else would. Other people would see a dead man, um, a kid who killed him, who was guilty because he struck him. Veer sees that, that there's a religious dimension to this that isn't, wouldn't be obvious to other people. Um, the next page, but Captain Veer was now again motionless, standing absorbed in thought again, starting, he vehemently exclaimed, struck dead by an angel of God, yet the angel must hang. So there's no question in Veer's mind of Billy's isness at all, or the nature of an evil answered. But as a captain of the ship trying to answer what could be a precedent, he has to act because he knows the implications, what the implications, the consequences might be for other people. So just hold on to that now, okay? I'm going to go on. When Veer comes out of the room, it, um, the narrator's description of the surgeon is this way. Full of disquietude and misgiving, the surgeon left the cabin. Was Captain Veer suddenly affected in his mind, or was it but a transient excitement brought about by so strange and extraordinary a tragedy? So from the surgeon's perspective, we're not encouraged to make a judgment, but we are encouraged to raise questions about Veer's decision. Is that clear? I'm trying to describe a very fine line here. because I think it's one faithful, I think, to what Melville's doing. He's seeing something in Veer he's not seen before, and it raises questions for us about what just happened. On page 55 and 56, <coughs> this is during the trial scene when um, um, Veer is speaking to the other members that have been called for this trial, and he says, you give the chapter? It's chapter, 
Um, it's the long one, 21. It's well into the 21st chapter. He says, for the compassion, how can I otherwise than share it? He's looking to the men and saying, because he's seen, they're aware that Billy is innocent, or what he did was in innocence, and they're reluctant to condemn a man knowing that. And Veer is sharing their sentiments. He says, for compassion, I don't have a question about it. But down below he says, in the paragraph that begins, but your scruples, how can we adjudge to summary, to s summary and shameful death a fellow creature innocent before God, and whom we feel to be so? Does that state it aright? You sign sad assents. They're all sad. They're saying yes. Well, I too feel that, the full force of it. It is nature. But do these buttons that we wear attest that our allegiance is to nature? No, to the king. Here's this difference between a natural law and social law again. Though the ocean, which is in violet nature primeval, though this be the element where we move in and have our being, sorry, you guys, um, sorry, um, have our being as sailors, yet as the king's officers lies our duty in a sphere correspondingly natural. Are the two contiguous or on an equal level? So little is it the true that in receiving our commissions, we were in the most important regard ceased to be natural free agents. When war is declared, when war is declared, are we the commissioned fighters previously consulted? Did they go in the war based on our consent to it? We fight at command. If our judgment approve of the war, that's but coincidence. So another particular. So now. For, so, for supposed condemnation to follow these present proceedings, would it be so much we ourselves that would condemn it as would be martial law operating through us? For that law and the rigor of it, we are not responsible. Our vowed responsibility is in this. By the way, one of the reasons I want to do Henry V, because I think he's Shakespeare's most extraordinary leader, Henry V is going to make this argument to his men. And let me put it this way to try to make it more practical. I, I, I joined the Marines. I was in the Marines. When I became a soldier, if I had gone to Vietnam, and some people have served, can you imagine men going into the war when the war wasn't, or sorry, going into the service, and then war is declared? What happens when those men are told to take a hill by a sergeant, who they all are doubtful about, they're going to have to put their lives at risk for what may not be a good decision, and for a decision that they gave no consent to when they entered the military. When we come out of a state of nature into a society, what happens to those natural things in us as citizens, let's say as a husband and wife, when we enter into a marriage involving decisions of our, you know, affecting our kids. So there's a clear tension here. I really am thinking more and more we need to do Henry V. But anyway, that's, that's the gist of Veer's argument right now to the men. Our vowed responsibility is in this, that however pitilessly that law may operate in any instances, we nevertheless adhere to it and administer it. Um, the men raise a question, but he um, replies, um, I, I emotionally broke the officer of Marines. In one sense it was, but surely Billy Budd proposed neither mutiny nor homicide. 
Those are not his motives. If you ask Billy, he would have had no motives, um, except to defend himself. Surely not, my good man, and before a court less arbitrary and more mercifully than a martial one, that plea would largely extenuate. At the last assizes, when we all face God, it shall acquit. But how here we proceed under the law of mutiny act, in features no child can resemble his father, more than that act resembles in spirit the thing from which it derives, war. That's what they're facing. Let me try to enlarge the context. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to get... Uh, as Christians, we believe we're in a state of war. So long as we're here on earth, for anybody who's seriously Catholic, he knows that he's a part of what we call the church militant. We are at war. We are fighting Satan. If we ever become so complacent in our comfort that we put ourselves outside of the war... I, I'm not sure that we can talk about the... I mean, think about the violence that's going on around us. Think about abortion. How did those things come to be? Where were we? We're called to resist evil. Um, we're at war. Sometimes that means we have to make decisions when, when it's going to be painful for us to do that. So this is the problem Melville's dealing with. Surely not, my good man, before a courtless arbitrary more merciful than a, um, a marshal, and that plea would largely extenuate. In the last assizes, it shall acquit. But how here we proceed under the law of the Mutiny Act, a child's no more like his father than that, in war. In his majesty's service, in this ship indeed, there are Englishmen forced to fight for the king against their will, against their conscience, for aught we know, though as their fellow creatures, some of us may appreciate their position, yet as navy officers, what wreck of we have it? still less wrecks the enemy. Because the enemy are going to be impressed too. They're being forced to fight a war for the enemy, even if they may not support it. As regards the enemy's naval conscripts, some of whom may even share our own abhorrence of the regicidal French directory, it's the same on our side. War looks but to the frontage, the appearance. He goes on and on and on. So the conflict is between the natural goodness of Billy and the law, as it's has to be applied in those particular circumstances. And if I let me, if I can, so in a spiritual battle, let's say in our marriages, in our family, as parents, um, with the people who are committing lawful acts outside our neighborhoods or in our neighborhoods, um, we're always faced with that tension. Um, what's how do we apply? a particular principle, a universal principle, in a particular circumstance. I'm trusting everybody knows how hard that is at times. And page, now go back, um, because I want to go to Catherine's point, because there's two questions I want to... Remember that in the trial, the, the, the men on the committee were asking Billy to describe what had happened, and he says, it's exactly as Veer said. Um, said Veer was true. Everything he said is true. Veer, who's a witness, says, God bless you. And Billy says, God bless you. Um, and he stammered again because he was so emotionally shaken by the moment. 
No, there was no malice between us. I never bore malice against the master at arms. I am sorry that he's dead. I did not mean to kill him. Could I have used my tongue? I would have not struck him. The importance of language here, I mean, there's not enough to say about it. Could I have used my tongue? I would not have struck him. But he fouled, he foully lied to my face and in presence of my captain. And I had to say something, and I could only say it with a blow. God help me. You know that um, when Billy is hung, this is on page 66, it's in chapter 25, just before the moment when the, the chaplain has tried to bring God to him and finds that it's sort of useless, that Billy's this natural creature, um, he's asked if he has any last words to say. And Billy says, God bless Captain Veer. Syllable so unanticipated coming from one with the ignominious hemp around his neck, a conventional felon's benediction directed aft towards the quarter of honor. Syllables, too, delivered in the clear melody of a singing bird. Words wholly unobstructed. He did not stutter. He's going to his death. He's not feeling sorry. He's not condemning the man and said, I'm a victim. He said, God bless Veer. Absolute equanimity. And you know the description, um, the hull deliberately crowing, the ships you know, going back and forth. At the same moment, it chanced that the vapory fleece hanging low in the east was shot through with the soft glory as of the fleece of the Lamb of God seen in mystical vision and simultaneously therewith watching, watched by the wedged mass of upturned faces, Billy ascended and descending took the full rose of the dawn. It's a Christ image. Now, here's, I've got um, two questions. I'm going to leave out the question that I asked last week, whether Veer was right or not. I, I think the form of the book vindicates Veer, because otherwise we lose the heroism on Billy's side and the heroism, the, 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 crucifi <coughs> the crucified suffering on both sides, that they both had to suffer this. <coughs> I've got a couple of questions. Last week, wait, let me preface this. So sorry. You remember over the course of our work together, I've been talking about the action of tragedy. Remember the the action, um, the plot is an imitation of the action. The plot, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. But every one of those events imitates a hidden, so those are visible. Every one of those visible events imitates an invisible spiritual action. Something's happened with Achilles and the Greeks. Aeneas, Dante, Billy Budden Veer. There's some spiritual movement, that action, and we only know it through the literal surface. That's been a principle of our reading from the beginning. So one of our questions is, is how, how well do we read? Can we see in that visible plot the invisible spiritual movement? Okay, And you know from tragedy that every tra all good tragedy turns on a recognition. Othello, Anthony Cleopatra, Hamlet, Macbeth, Lear, you can go on and on. Oedipus. Every tragic action turns, and it's, so it's, remember it's the, the peripatia, the turn, and the anagnorisis, the recognition that coincide. It's the metanoia. It's those moments of conversion in our life when we go, 
God, I'm not as good as I thought I was. I've just not seen things the way I should have. That that turn is essential for tragedy, and it makes tragedy good. So even though the cost is death, it's an affirmation of life and reason because it, it says even though people are going to die, it affirms the presence of reason and very often a grace working with it that can help the tragic here and the, the people recover some equilibrium, some balance. It's, it's the beginning of the new order. All the evils have been answered. And now they can, they can start out without being affected by those evils, whether it's Iago, you know, in Othello or anybody else. So every action turns on a moment of recognition that we see something and that moment is essential for the turn because it reaffirms the place of reason that we can learn to see ourselves and the importance of that reason for establishing the ground for a new order. Okay? Is everybody clear? I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. So that tragic action is really important. So I've got two questions now. Let me just ask them both, and I'd like to take a few minutes with each one of them. The question I asked last week is, um, does Billy flower? And I, and I, 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 I mean, I was absolutely one with Kathy when she said, yeah. When he, when he says, um, God bless Veer, you know, in the trial scene. And then at the very end, um, when they asked, do you have any last words? Billy says, God bless Veer. And the whole ship's company echoes the words in unison. It's, it's as if Billy is the agency for unifying that crew around an act of self-sacrifice. There's not going to be a mutiny. They all said, God bless Captain Veer. So there's an extraordinary thing happening. And my question was, does he flower? Is he a rose? It's interesting to me that, that Melville's description, and, and, he, and he rose, took rose to the dong. I mean, I, that's, but does he flower? I mean, he's a bud. Does he fulfill himself? Now here's, so, and two questions, that's one. The other is, immediately after this, we get that scene in which, um, sorry, we get that scene in which the surgeon and the, uh, the guy who handles the financial matters are talking, and the, the purser says to the surgeon, he didn't lose his bowels. He didn't shake the way hung people do. And he didn't loosen his bowels. This is what people always do when they're hung. And the purser is asking it because in some sense he takes it as an indication that something strange was going on, maybe even miraculous. Billy did not stutter at the very end when he's about to be hung. He says, God bless Captain Veers. His words are given like the melody of a bird. There's no trouble. And he goes to his death. And the purser is pointing out, and the, 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 the uh, surgeon, who's a scientist, um, can't answer it. As a matter of fact, he gets so irritated you know, at the purser pressing this question, that he gets up and walks away from the table. Now remember, this is the man who walked out of the room with um, Veer when he looked troubled and had suspicions about him. And here's a man at the end who's faced with this question, how do you explain the fact that Billy didn't lose his bowels or didn't shake? 
So that's the first question. Um, did Billy flower? And let me ask the well, to follow that with the essential question. Can a person fully realize who he is without a moment of recognition? Does Billy recognize his fault? One of the great things that Melville has done for us, he's got, I think he's gone past Ishmael because Ishmael dissociates himself from Ahab and goes on to love being. I mean, he just, he finds meaning everywhere. In Billy Budd, he's answering Calvin and this doctrine of innate depravity. He's showing a young boy who is not taken over by depravity. He's, he's inherently good but he's innocent and he commits this crime. Can, can somebody com fully become who he was given to be without a moment of recognition? Because it's, one, it's been one of the marks of tragedy. That's the first question. The second is, what do we make of all these, you know, the, the, the surgeon not being able to explain what happens? And then um, finally, at the, the book ends with um, our, our being told about these reports of what happened. And the reports describe um, Claggart as innocent, um, sacrificing his soul for the good of the Navy, and Billy Budd is this vindictive, awful man who tried to, who tried to stab, you know, an officer of the, <laughs> of the Navy. <laughs> I, I don't want to prejudice things here, but it's hard for me to read that without being aware of false or fake news. <laughs> we get all these news reports that, that, that absolutely reverse what we've been given from the point of view of the narrator. So I just, I'd like to take a few minutes with each of those questions before we put Billy Budd to rest. The first one is, um, do we see Billy as fully realizing who he was in that execution? Is there a moment of recognition or not? Kathy, you're the well, one who said on that, because I, and I, 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 I what, what's you your thought back, on that? You go back to the first chapter. There was a similar incident where Billy was uh, stuttered, he was agitated, he stuttered, and he hit, I believe it was red whiskers, and at that point, Red Whiskers respected him, loved him. The okay. men loved him. Right. They right. were doing his darning his socks. I mean, he was a hero. Yeah. And then in this incident, you know, he lost his, his uh, he was speech. And the same act, he struck out. But this time he killed a man. Okay. I think. The fact that Billy had no idea that this and no intention, the intention of his heart is not to harm or to kill. But until it happened, um, I, I mean, I think he wasn't innocent. But that didn't eliminate the fact that it was an evil act and a man died. I think that Billy realized at that point that it was indeed. Um, uh, a very harmful, and I think that he took, I think at that moment he took responsibility and he realized 
um, even though it was unintentional, it caused great harm. Yeah. And I think he realized that that the captain, being in the position of the captain, uh, in the circumstances of war and the mutinies, mm -hmm. had no choice. Yeah, let me tighten. Yeah, let me tighten this. Some I agree with everything you said. Let me tighten it some. Can Billy? Does Billy identify his wrong? Can, does he? Sure. Rec, is the, is there a recognition in the sense that he understands the nature of what he did? I personally think so, and I think the fact that he said, God bless Captain Verdi, uh, is a recognition of, of um, the fact that even though he meant no harm, harm was caused by him, and yeah. I think he recognized that. Yeah. Anybody else? Tracy, where are you on this? I, I, I'm assuming you haven't read it, so I, I even. But just on the basis of what you're hearing, do you have a thought on any of this? I guess my shooting in the dark. Uh, for anyone to call upon God means that you recognize that. Your life is not about you, or, you know, or that you need something. <laughs> That's all I've got, with no, no, not a single word. <laughs> Anybody else, Nikki? Where are you on this? No, you can't shake your head. Come on, you got to answer. It does. It, um, does he recognize? Is this a moment of recognition in the way that we're used to thinking about it in tragic, in a in a tragic action? Does he see the nature of his sin? I didn't get this far. <laughs> <laughs> what to do? What am I going to do with you guys? What what to do with you guys? <clears throat> Bob. Yeah. What's the difference between recognizing the nature of his sin and understanding that what he did was wrong? It seems to me like those are two different things for you. I'm, I'm not sure they are, Mark. I'm, I'm. Oh, okay. I, I'm. I think in, I think in one sense there's an important distinction, but I, I right now I'm, I'm reluctant to say it. Because I really want to hear your minds on it. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you what's in my mind in a second, but well, anybody else? I don't, yeah, I don't know if he recognized his sin. I, 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 it doesn't seem to me from the reading that that was the case. He did admit guilt. He was not denying anything. So he knew what he did was wrong. He was willing to pay the penalty. Stand-up guy, right? Right, right? But as far as, like I said, I think you're trying to go somewhere with recognizing his sin. I don't know what that is, but I didn't see... Yep. That in the reading. Yep. My take. Yep. No, no. I'm, yeah. Should go Bob, ahead. Or wait, sorry. Bob, one thing I, I think, I think that Billy Bob, I, I think his couple, well, the uh, pastor didn't have any luck in trying to um, talk about God to him. But I, I would think from a Christian perspective, and maybe Melville's perspective, I don't know, I think he had no guilt before God. 
uh, I really don't. And and I know I, I looked this up in the catechism, and for a thing to be considered <laughs> mortal, you have to you have to know it's wrong and consent to it, which really God didn't do. We we've got a Porsche amongst us. <laughs> Sue, what do you got? Sue, go ahead. I I don't think we see a turn in the way that we have in other books. I don't think there's this moment where Billy realizes that his flaw, if we want to call it that, is that he is too innocent. He recognizes what he did, but he doesn't... I don't know that I think he recognizes a bigger scheme in which he is so innocent that that's part of the problem. I also have a little different take that nobody's going to like probably. <laughs> Go ahead. When I, at, at least of all you. <laughs> when I read this, I was struck in a way that was like a lightning bolt. That when you have no voice, You may do inappropriate, even illegal things that may draw punishment. And I think about that in today's situation, that sometimes when people feel they have no voice, what they do may not be seen as appropriate. But Billy didn't have a voice, and what he did wasn't appropriate. He got punished for it. And I've been looking for Portia in this story from the beginning. There wasn't any Portia around. No. There was no. nobody with the mercy to temper the justice. It may have been just, but nobody was wise enough to temper that. Now, you want to say it's just war. This is me personally. So this is my bias. I don't buy that as an excuse. I don't buy that. Those in charge get to make the rules. That's the way society works. I don't consider that natural law. I consider that man's law. And we've been trying to live that way in cities because we turn from God. And if we don't have that mercy that tempers justice or that can see through justice, that can help people see through, then I think we're in real trouble. I don't. I mean, you can live that way because it creates law and order. But it to me that isn't God's it, it, it isn't <laughs> it isn't even natural law it's it's the way man makes laws so. there, yeah there's a lot there Sue let me let me see if I can make a brief I'm sorry because I've been thinking about this all week no 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 not the direction you want to go no 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 don't 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 do that you're all of that's I'm really glad for it um there's a lot there, and, and I'm not sure that I can remember it. Just hold on. First of all, first of all, I, I mean, my way of describing Billy is, is I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't make it parallel to what's going on politically today. Hear me through, just for this. Um, um, I believe that everybody has to have a voice, and and there are things going on socially that keep people from having a voice. So we're not in disagreement about that, and I and I know that that's a problem. I think what Melville's dealing with is something very, very different, though, and it's important to see that difference. He's not saying that Billy doesn't have a voice. I mean, he can say that about all the sailors, you know, and 
I mean, the reason for the mutiny was they were saying they were being mistreated and you know they weren't given a voice. And so they had that mutiny. I think what Melville's doing was very, very different. Um, he's not dealing with that, or at least not that way explicitly in the foreground. He's dealing with an innocence um, and the effect that that has on somebody in that innocence to deal with evil. I think that's a very, very different problem. You can have a voice or, or be oppressed and not have a voice. You, unborn children don't have voices today. We're not ta- we're not, I don't think Millville's dealing with that. Or let's say somebody who's been unpressed or lacking in education won't have a voice. There's a difference between that and being, if, if he's taking in, Ish, or uh, Billy as an extension of what he did with Ishmael in answer to Ahab, that Ahab grown up under these Calvinistic beliefs. He's showing us an innocent. What he's doing is showing us there's this inherent goodness in man. But what happens when that man deals with evil and there's nothing in that innocence to help him deal with it, to find a voice. Because Melville's pretty explicit about that. It's that he didn't have a voice. He couldn't do anything and he struck out a number of times as, as Kathy mentioned. So first I think it's, it's not just lacking a voice politically. He's going to something more primeval that has to do with inherent goodness in man and whether that in, what happens when that inherent goodness deals with evil or, or is faced with evil. If you, if you remember Fred's question, it was one of the, I think it was one of his more important questions, why do we, why do, we do so badly when we're dealing with evil? Um, Ivan is got a voice. He's articulate in a way Billy isn't. There's no way he's prepared to deal with evil when it comes. I think Melville's dealing with that question more than politically we have. I, mean, I think they're related, but the other thing is, um, you know, and I mean, people may disagree here. You know, you, you all may have different feelings about this, but I don't think there was a mercy lacking. I mean, we may disagree here in what Veer, what Veer did. In, um, in Merchant of Venice, you're dealing with a civil situation in which one man tried to use the law to kill another. And the penalty of that would have been um, death. Um, Portia answered that justice and brought something to it that neither side, not the Jews or the Christians, could have. I, I'm not seeing, personally, myself, in the way that Melville has set this up in a war situation, um, the same sort of thing. When I think about the options, if he put, so he could have just killed him and with no mercy, just heartlessly executed him. I mean, that would have been one. Because I'm trying to look at the extremes. That was a real possibility. Or he could have um, kept him in prison and held him until they met with the Admiral. We don't know what would have happened. I mean, we, we learned that they went to war with another ship. So they had a time of war. Veer was faced with a situation where he had to do something with a sense of a larger good. I, I myself am not sure that there's anything lacking in mercy. Because mercy for me doesn't mean letting somebody off. Very often, it, I, think for, I think for most of us, very often, it's what C.S. Lewis called a tender mercy or a painful mercy, that very often some of the um, things that happen to us that we look at as bad we look at later as being mercies, that they helped us to see something that we wouldn't have seen without that pain. 
So I myself don't look at, at the situation as the way you are. If I look at the extremes, if Billy had been put in jail, the likelihood is there's a good likelihood that the crew would have revolted and they would have had violence. The question is, under those circumstances, how do you apply the law? I don't see anything in the way of mercy lacking in veer in the fact that he executed him. Um, mercy doesn't mean letting, letting off. As a matter of fact, if you think about Portia's mercy, there are lots of Jewish people who would have seen that as cruel. He had to give up all his property, half to his daughter, and he had to convert. There's a lot of people who are going to say that's not mercy. Because mercy doesn't mean letting somebody off. If you think about Christ when he's talking about bringing law together, or I mean the law and mercy together, um, he's not saying letting, he, he sent the judges back to the law, and he sent the woman adultery back, and he said, go and sin no more. The mercy was there. What, what would happen if she committed adultery again? Mercy doesn't mean, at least as I'm reading Christ, it doesn't mean letting people off. It, it, it means very often fulfilling a justice without grudges, resentments, um, self-righteousness, pride, um, look what you've done to me. Mercy means applying the law in love. And sometimes you can, I think you can do that without letting somebody go. And Veer's faced with that kind of a situation. So, Bob, um, it's Jolie. To answer Mark's question, is it kind of like their, um, Billy Bud did not have murder in his heart, but still committed the sin and therefore had to pay an earthly consequence, whether or not, you know, with, you know I don't know what the heavenly consequence is because there was not murder in his heart. But then Veer also had to, um, with no malice there, do his right. job of applying the consequence. Right even though he may have had mercy toward Billy Budd. Right. Listen, let me, because we've got to go on. Let me take the other two questions quickly, if we can. Because people, I mean, we can meditate on this. I mean, we, I'm not sure that we're going to answer all these questions here. Second question is, what do we learn from that exchange between the, the purser and the surgeon? What does it mean that Billy didn't shake and he, and he wasn't incontinent? His bowels didn't release. And he didn't stutter. When he said, God bless, what, what, the surgeon can make no sense of that. What are we to do? Why did Melville follow Billy's execution with that scene? I don't know if this is what he was trying to do. And I don't know if what I'm about to say I agree with as far as what it means in the story. But I think it was Melville's way of a transcendent moment. Was Billy becoming more perfect, not human anymore? So he didn't act human. It was, and I don't, I don't want to push it to the divine, right? Um, I think that's where Melville's trying to go with it. I don't know if I like that or not, but, but I think that's where he's trying to go. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's not human. I mean, I don't want to be. I'm you, God. I just feel so. I think he's fully human, but if there's anything divine in him, it gets realized in that moment. That that. I, you know, and everything we're doing, I'm trying to hold on to everything that's human at a time when our world is trying to do everything it can to demean everything that's human. Billy is, I would say, at that moment, I, the question that I have is this question about recognition, um, you know, whether, whether he fully recognizes his sin. It, it, remember, by, by the way, before we leave that, remember Othello. There's no way Othello does not see 
the full implications of his actions, or Anthony and Cleopatra, or Lear, or Hamlet, or... Um, but at least in that moment, in Melville's presentation of him, he's showing us that finally Billy has realized some sorry, inherent goodness. He does not stutter. His bowels don't release. I think he's but Melville's showing there is this great glory to human beings in this moment of accepting justice, not being a victim. It's so Christ-like in so many ways. And I, and I, took, I mean, to go to your point, Mark, I, I really do believe it, it's Melville showing there is something transcendent that's realized in the human person. You know, it can be a person in AA, let's just say, if you go in front of an AA group and say, my name is Robert, you know, I'm an alcoholic, or I'm Achilles, and this is my fault, or, you know, whatever it is, when any of us um, has one of those moments, it just seems to me there's a, a, a help from outside ourselves where we could not have those moments. And this is a moment for Billy. And the interesting thing for me is the scientist can't see it. I mean, it's, it's another world. I mean, his, his world cannot make a place for this stuff. Um, he walks, he, he gets up irritated and walks away from the table. Um, okay, last question before we, sorry. I, um, last question before we stop. Why did Melville end with these news reports reverting, rever actually reversing the situation from the way the narrator describes it? Billy's vindictive. Claggart was this good man. Um, why does he do that? <clears throat> he ends the story. Well, I mean, you've got the poem, the Billy and the Darbies, but the last chapters are about these <coughs> newspaper reports. Fake news. Well, flesh it out, can you? What, what about it? Well, one thing about it, I think it definitely shows the difference between the world that we, we you know, the world as world and uh, the divine or the spiritual. And it really shows, um, you know, how very different they are. Yeah. And how very different they read, if I can put it in those terms again. How very yeah. different. Sorry? Yes. Yeah, right. they're looking to the same exact situation, and one of them, actually, one of them is lying. Billy did not stab anybody, that, and that's not even close to the truth. But it just right. makes you aware of how certain people do not want to see something, and how they'll even go so far as to distort something to support the view that they do have. And you know, we see a lot of that in our world today. I have a question... Uh, that goes with that when people do that and I, I you know you can see it you can see it in others you can see it in yourself if you if you look carefully good for you yeah the thing of it is is they don't even know they're lying because, <laughs> because they convince themselves that that's the way it is yeah yeah do you guys and remember what the condition of Dante's hell was pardon me do you guys remember what the condition of Dante's hell was? What defined hell? 
No, but I remember different brothers Karamazov. <laughs> I remember Zoff Zoff's Mia's his was your inability to love or be loved. That's what he said. <laughs> I like that. Sue, go ahead. Go. Well, I was just going to say that the people there don't even realize yeah. what they've done. Or Sorry. They've lost the virtue yeah. of the intellect. Yeah. They've lost the good in the intellect. I remember we said this. They don't even know that they don't know. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just repeating what you guys are saying. That, um, right. Um, we can trap ourselves in a hell here on earth. I mean, we can create, we create our hells here, so. You know, Bob? <coughs> One in reading about when they were talking about his personality and him, one of the things they did say about him. Him, but about Melville, or Bill? Uh, about Claggart. Oh, it said he wanted to love Billy, but he couldn't. Right, right, right. And that just really, I mean, I thought, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. sad. Yeah. 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 Yep. Okay, if you guys are okay to leave Billy Bud and let it take its place in our work together, or any last comments or questions? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask one more thing because this is me struggling with maybe it is a Protestant Catholic difference here. But for me, instead of Billy recognizing, the, the turn for me was not quite a, the same as it obviously was for you. But, but what it said to me is, in the end, the part of Billy that was divine was able to come through for his innocence. Mm -hmm. so, so I did see a divinity in the end that's part of all of us, if we can but discover that and get out of the way ourselves. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't see it. I, mean, I saw it as just. Yeah, yeah. I argue. I don't argue that. But yeah. I, I didn't think Billy himself. I think he was just innocent to the end. But that innocence allowed God's, the divine part of him to shine through, and show everybody else, and basically save everybody else. Here, yeah, I. Yeah, no, no, no. So you're—I mean, we're just—we're. The distinctions now are so fine. I'm—I mean, I'm really getting nervous because I—I I don't want to be unfair to the other side because it's not a black. I mean, we're—we're we're talking about real fine things. It. Um, I agree with all you're saying, but I'm—I'm I'm holding on to a fine distinction in my mind for other reasons. And let me try to let me try to put some clarity on them here. I don't think Billy's innocence saved him. I think his innocence led to his execution. That what Melville is showing us is, like Hawthorne with Dimsdale in the Forest, that there is no such thing as an innocent. We're, we're fallen creatures. I think both Melville and Hawthorne believe that. They're both Christian. They're both Protestant. I, th I see both of them moving away from a Protestant world because of inhuman things in it, um, particularly from Calvin. Um, both of them, both of them, wait, so how to put this, God, this is complex, this is so complicated. Both of them um, were horrified by the unnatural things of the doctrines people were living under, particularly Calvin, predestination, like a free will, things like human depravity. 
I think Melville's Moby Dick is the is the most forceful um, exposition of Calvin that's ever been done. Ahab is a man who is who has been brought up under these beliefs of predestination, a lack of free will, um, and believes that nobody can hold those if man loses his free will or he's depraved and predestined to damnation. That that all that implies an evil in God, this malice that he wants to get to. So his whole his whole quest, from my perspective, is super. It's a super affirmation of everything human in our soul. For any human being to, to be raised under those conditions is to re, is to suffer a kind of Christ-like indignity before he even goes to his end. It it it, it utterly takes away everything human. Ahab is doing everything he can to fight against that. Tragically, he goes to his death on it. Ishmael get called, gets called in, into that quest for, because he identifies with it. We've done that. I don't want you know. I don't want to go. He he gradually dissociates himself from the quest, and he loves. In Moby Dick, or I sorry, in Billy Budd, I th I think Melville is still struggling with this same question. Except what he's doing now is that he's taking what seems to be an innate innocence. So he's not dealing with Ahab. He's dealing with this innocence and showing its goodness. But I don't think it's his innocence that saved Billy Budd. It's his innocence that leads to the crime and his punishment. So indirectly, Melville's he's not what he's doing is refuting depravity. You know, one extreme, but he's also showing that innocence by itself is not enough. We can't deal with evil. It's it's everything. Our course has shown us that evil overmasters us. It's too great. Billy's innocent is what sets him up. So I don't think his innocence saved him. I think what he's doing is showing it it hurt him. But the wonderful thing about Billy Budd, in my mind, is that he he's he's left Ishmael. He's showing us a figure now who affirms an innocence that Ahab never experienced, that Ishmael comes to. But we don't, we don't have to deal with it. Ishmael never has to deal with evil after. He writes this story. I think Melville is dealing with a fundamental American and Protestant religious problem. Here's my take on it, Sue, for what it's worth. It, the, the serious question for me is this. Both Hawthorne and Melville found themselves um, what's um, outcast. Call me Ishmael. You know, it's an outcast person. They're Christians, but there's something wrong with the Christian world. They're like, both of them. All their works show there's something wrong here. Melville deals with depravity in Moby Dick. He's dealing with innocence in Billy Budd, and showing that the the problem with it is is that it, 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 it can't deal with evil. And, and it's interesting to me that there's no way, without a voice to begin to articulate it, Billy never gets there. He still dies in innocence. That's one of the reasons I have a question about you know, his recognition. But here's my question that, that I'm left with with Melville. It's not, I don't have any doubt in my mind that Melville's dealing with profound metaphysical questions. Bobby Dick, Billy Budd. It's a serious question in my mind whether he ever resolves them. And it's a serious question whether he... Both of them are going to Catholicism indirectly. In Moby Dick, you've got all these illusions that point that way. Um, um, and it's why I've got this... I mean, I, didn't, I don't want to make a big deal of this, but it's one of the reasons I've got a question about his recognition. 
it, it's a serious question in my mind whether Billy still doesn't die in innocence. And by the way, I'm not arguing with any of you. I think Billy Budd at the end is this glorious figure. He's an extraordinary figure. He's Christ-like. I have no doubts about it. Whether he's fully seen, whether he's gotten past his innocence in a way that shows he's taken responsibility for, his, for evil because he can identify it himself is a serious question for me. And in that way, it leaves me wondering if Melville, as much as he struggled with this, ever finally resolved it. Um, that's one of the questions I'm left with is Melville. I, I'm so grateful to him for his work for Hawthorne, what they've done. I believe most modern critics cannot even begin to look at these problems, you know, to, to, to do justice to what Melville and Hawthorne did. I think what they did is extraordinary, but in Billy Budd, it's a serious question in my mind whether Hawthorne resolved this. And, and, and here, let, let me even try to make it clear. We've done a th let me just take one, one, one play, but it's, it's representative. If you look at Othello, at the end of Othello, who, who had to deal with evil and could not deal with it, he was overcome by everything Iago did. It's only by a series of accidents at the end that it all comes out. But at the end, there's no question that he recognizes his fault. Concretely, he's not innocent. He doesn't even get close to that. So it's a, it's a serious question for me in, in the way in which people are raised today to feel like they're innocent, this American, this innocent Adam, whether they ever learn to take responsibility for evil and the justice, or let me put it, the death that we all owe God. We owe God a life. What Christ did was perfect justice in an act of love. It's a ser I, I, don't, I personally don't believe any human being can do that innocent in innocence. It's only when we learn to see the evil in ourselves, to, to identify it, um, that we can begin to go beyond, to turn for the graces. You know, and you've got confession, you've got the sacraments. I mean, there are things going on in our world that just don't go on in Billy's world. It's just, you know, when the, when the chaplain goes to talk with him about God, and it's, it's, it's a little bit funny because Billy maintains that innocence. I mean, the, 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 chap, the, the narrator's description is, it's falling on deaf ears. Billy understands nothing, nothing of that. But by the way, just to, for, on your side, that doesn't, in my mind, that does not take away from Billy. In my mind, there's no way God doesn't know that. When I look at, you know, you guys know me, I look at Mink Snopes the same way. Mink Snopes is uneducated. He's an itinerant farmer. He's illiterate. He doesn't understand things. He, he doesn't go to metaphysical depths. He ends up killing Flem Snopes. But, but there's a change that takes place with him in jail. Does it help him see himself? I don't know. But in my own mind, I have no, I mean, I, I know lots of people disagree with me. I have no doubts that God, I don't know what God will do with Billy's sin, because I think it's a sin. He killed a man. But I have no doubt, knowing God, Billy will find a place there. I have no doubts with Mink. I mean, if we're talking about them as real people. It's just a serious question whether, you know, the modern world has lost a tragic view of things. One of the things that I've been so glad to do with you guys is that we've been able to read some tragedy. That's why I want to go back to Aeschylus and Sophocles. The modern bourgeois world has lost a scientific world. 
has lost a tragic view. We don't see the nature of evil. We don't see the cost of our innocence. And very often, even after the suffering the pains of it, we don't fully see that. I cannot say that about um, Shakespeare. I cannot say that about Dostoevsky. Both of those writers are fully capable of looking at evil, helping us to see it, and watch what happens with it and the struggles we have with it. Um, Melville so it's only struggled with it all his life. Good. Sorry, sorry, Joni, go ahead. Oh, I was just asking, so it's only in Melville that it costs a person to not um, see their need for Christ or their own their their own uh, sin nature. See, is that is that a question, Jolie? I'm sorry, I didn't hear all of it. Oh, I just said it um, where you were talking about the three authors, um, Dostoevsky and um, the, uh, hello um, Shakespeare and Hemingway, Shakespeare and Melville. Right. Um, that only in Melville is does it cost a person greatly because they don't um, face their sin nature. I think they do in all of the works. I think they all of them are great. I think one of the reasons for their greatness is they had the courage. Lots of writers won't go there. Those three writers had, I, I think they were close to sainthood because there's no way they could not have suffered in their writing to go to those depths. My question is, you know, how far they went and where they go. I mean, I've got, I, I have nothing but admiration for Melville. I, it's just a serious question in, for me with Billy Budd how we're to understand that turn. I, I just wanted to ask these questions because I think they're good. Let me stop here. Let me stop, okay? Because um, I have a feeling we're going to take these up anyway. We've got all these, we've got all these questions. Fred made this wonderful suggestion um, a week ago um, about taking some time off to try to put this whole thing in, in perspective. And I'd, I'd like to preface the what I'm about to do and turn it over to you guys with this. In one sense, I'm going to I'm going to say. I mean, we know Catholic families in which bad things happen. We know secular families that in in which nothing bad happens. You know, we know Protestant families in which good and bad. I mean, but. Um, one of the serious questions I have in my mind as a teacher dealing with our culture is um, can, can we learn to do justice, can we learn to live our faith without a solid humanist tradition behind us? One of the concerns that you know for me in our work together is that I'm concerned because I believe that Catholics, Protestants today, are growing up without this humanist tradition. That they carry this faith, but they're off in their work world doing this word work, so as if these two things, black-white, don't mesh. They don't come together. So the people live their faith, but, but they don't understand that they, there may be something missing. So one of the questions that I have is, um, are we doing our faith an injustice, if I can put it, I mean, that may sound like a contradiction in terms, are we doing our faith an injustice by not giving ourselves more to this tradition? Because this tradition, as remember, the, one of the distinguishing marks of Catholicism, faith and reason, 
Grace perfects nature. For us, nature is not depraved. There's a healthy goodness in nature. Are we awake to it? Do we respond to it? Are we guided by it? Do we see it? So holding this tradition has been essential to the Catholic faith. Absolutely essential to hold those two things. Dante shows it. So if you live in a modern world in which you're, you take your faith seriously, but you don't have that humanist tradition, when bad things happen um, and you've learned not to depend on that tradition, so you've turned away from the good things that it can offer you, how, how likely are you to turn from your faith then? Because your faith has let you down. One of the things that I, one of the values it seems to me of the work that we've been doing is trying to hold, trying to recover a tradition for its importance in strengthening us in our faith, to recover it. That, that was one of the major appeals of John, John Paul's um, papacy, to recover that tradition. It was, he was, he expressed a real concern for the fundamentalist and the, and the fundamentalist um, um, Muslim because both of them rejected this notion of a logos at work in the world, this logos in nature and the way it's carried in this tradition. So um, what we're doing right now, I mean, under Fred's inspiration, um, is stepping back and taking a look at this whole tradition you know, when we took it piece by piece, who knew where we'd end up at the end, what it would be? You guys have been amazing, in my mind, honestly amazing, that you would have stayed with this as long as you have. We've been recovering a tradition, all of us. Um, we didn't see it except part by part by part, and more gradually it was taking on the aspect of a whole. We've learned to see more. So in that light, in that spirit, I'd like to just say, here's this tradition. We've been looking at it for a long time now. And Fred, God bless him, um, you know, wanted to spend some time. So, um, so from now on, and next week, and maybe a couple of weeks, I don't know, um, what I'd like to do is turn it over to you guys to raise whatever questions you have about these works. You know, I, I, Fred and Francis' session I thought were really good. We can put all sorts of people together. We can put Porsche's trial scene together with Vere's trial scene together with Dimitri's trial scene. We can look at women or men or evil or um, reading or teachers or mentors or whatever you want. Um, this is a free-for-all. I'd like you guys to feel comfortable going, and I'm, I'm saying this very seriously, I'd like you guys to feel comfortable to go wherever you want to go. What's on your mind? Um, what have you taken away from these things? Where are your questions? We're going to spend the next couple of weeks dealing with these things. So wherever you want to go, okay? So Tracy, the fact that you have not read something is not going to let you off the hook here, just in case you thought it would. <laughs> um, so Nikki... Don't tell me you don't have a question on your mind. I do not believe it. Any, what, what, what concerns have you have? What questions or works? Where would you go with anything in your mind or your heart? I don't know. I, I don't think that I put as much thought into this as Fred yet. So <laughs> I still need to do my homework. 
<laughs> I don't believe that you. I don't believe that you've been. You've been here. Fate. You've been doing your homework all along. You are such a big combat. Come on. I want. I want a question for you. What is when you look? Give me a work or two that stands out in your mind. One. One work or two. What stands out? Immediately off the top of your head. Don't give this any thought. What works have meant more to you than others? Well, when I started, the semester I started was, you know, Milton and Dante. And so I think that they probably made the most impression because I didn't know what to expect <laughs> from, you know, attending class. and Yeah. And also, you know... I know I've shared this with you, but I come from a house divided. John grew up in the Presbyterian church and his parents are still very active in their community. And so, um, you know, I was really looking to understand where Protestants come from, what is their foundation and, hmm. you know, what the differences are between the two. Yeah, And so... You know, I think that those those two works were were really, I think, important to help me better understand not only Protestantism but Catholicism. Yeah, Nikki, let me ask if I can follow that up with a second. And um, I hope I've got the quote here because I'm depending on Fred, and I'm not sure that's wise. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got to take those yeah. open. I've got to take those openings when I get them. Um, if if I think in his, I thought it was a wonderful passage. The question that he was framing, but he was, I think he was quoting from um, Paradise Lost, and I can't remember the passage. I mean, it, I, um, it, I, 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 I mean, he he he's probably remembering something better than I do right now. But I think that passage may be from the Sun. Fred Fred will have to correct me here where. He says that God will give you everything you need, you know. And he was looking, and he was, if you remember the, the past or the paragraph that he wrote, he was, he was dealing with this larger question of why do we do such a poor job of dealing with evil, you know, generally. And I think he had Yvonne on his mind, but maybe, but so let me go to you on this. So let's say, so there's a Protestant work. If if Fred's, I I don't know the line, so I'm you know I'm going, but saying that's an accurate thing that the son is saying um, I will give you everything you need um, so uh, take wait wait let me just finish the question then uh, you correct me I'm, okay take, so take Yvonne take Billy Budd take any of the works in which people are dealing with evil and put in that context that that God said or Christ or you know I, I will give you all that I need how do we look at that if we look at like Dostoevsky or Billy Budd? And let me stop there because I, Fred may have to correct me. Go, go ahead. But you know the drift of my question. Go, Fred, go ahead. Well, the only thing that I, I thought might be relevant is that it was really God talking to the Son. And he said, I gave man everything he needed to deal with Satan. And yet, they didn't. And I mean that was the context in which it was presented. They by they you mean Which God the Father giving to the Son or No, giving the, to Adam and Eve. Oh giving God, to Adam and Eve. Sorry. To son Jesus. And I, I went back and looked at the book to make sure I got this right, but God was talking to the Son. 
Jesus. Well, I mean, you know, whether he's Jesus or Christ at that point. It's the son. It's the son. To the son. Yeah. And he said about man, I gave them every, because he was disappointed in, in the fall. And he said, I gave man everything he needed to deal with Satan. And he was disappointed. And I think that kind of put this whole context of, for me anyway, and that, that the string of things is man's difficulty in dealing with evil because it comes up in a lot of the right. different words. Right. Nikki, can you take that now, just Fred's question, and, you know, you, 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 were, um, you, were in, you found yourself drawn into Milton and Dante when we were doing Catholic Protestant, and if you look at Dostoevsky's brothers, Yvonne's struggle with evil, or Billy Budd, you know, um, who, I mean, there's no other way to look at that except he's dealing with an evil he's not prepared for, he doesn't know how to deal with it, you know, um, you could take other words, um, Mink, or Gavin and Ratliff in dealing with um, Phlegm. So, what do these works, do, what light do they throw, shed on this question that Fred's, that Fred was asking about um, um, was God, <laughs> this is not was God a liar oh, in no. telling of the son um, um, so wait hold on Doc's got an answer go ahead no it wasn't a liar he gave us everything we needed we just right. watched it right okay can you add anything more to that What's, I mean what is Dostoevsky or Melville or he gave us everything we needed he never said we would win yeah, I, I, mean, I hope it's. I hope it's faith. It's not right. like we're always going to be victorious. Okay. I mean, it's just well. I guess I, I don't. I don't necessarily think that it's that. I'm not disputing, or I don't think any of us are that we weren't given what we need. It's that we all don't understand how to manage it, or to accept it and not want more, or need more, or search for something better or different. But the question is, how do you deal with that behavior after? <laughs> I think that that's what all of these, I think all of these people are dealing with that, right? I sinned, but how, how do you deal with that sin? Or how are you dealt with? And do you come out on the other side better? Do you, you know, do you learn from it? Do you have a turning point, or do you not? You just go to hell. <laughs> Fred's question was... All depends. Why? Yeah. Why <laughs> do we have such you can think you did everything right, but you still don't know if you're going to heaven or not. Doc, Doc right. <laughs> Suzanne, Suzanne was just asking a question here. I don't know if you guys heard, heard her say the question. I thought Fred's question was, why do we have such a difficulty dealing with facing evil, dealing with it, um, mm. because we've been given free will, um, we've been given God's strength and support, so what, what, what's the problem? Why, why do we have this, why do we have this trouble? So misreading, um, arrogance, thinking that we know that we can beat, Yvonne thinking he can beat the devil, um, 
you know. Or deny God. Or deny God. I mean, anyway, I, I think there's all kinds of reasons that are inherent in the, in the human being, particularly after the fall, um, that pretty much guarantee yeah. that we won't do a good job. One of the first well, things that comes to my mind when in response to Suzanne, um, if you if you raised in a so she said so God's given us free will, He makes grace available to us if we go to Him. What happens if you're raised under doctrine? And I'm asking this really seriously. What happens if you're raised in a world in which the primary governing doctrines are security and comfort, wealth, prosperity, your family before God? I'm trying to, you know, um, the, the gospel reading we had a week ago was, if you remember, the, the king called the servant to account for his debts. And the king said, um, I'm going to take your wife, um, all your possessions, your children, and sell them um, to pay your debt. Which means they're all gone. I, I think the parable is, is showing we owe God our life. We, we owe a debt to him. Our, our original sin was against him. Um, all of it. We owe everything to him. So he's going to take away wealth, possessions, fa wife, family, kids, all of it. And the servant says, be patient with me. He goes down on his knees. It's only then, not before. The, the king's first response was not forgiveness. I just, I just think some priests overlooked that. His first response was condemnation. He's going to, they're lost. He's going to sell them all. Because um, there's no way he can pay off the debt. Goes down on his knees and then the king forgives him. And then the guy goes off and he calls his debtors and he doesn't forgive them. So the king calls him back and I can't remember if he puts him in hell or punishes him. or, But, but it's interesting to me. So it's, um, the, the question is, was that man prepared to give up his comfort, his wealth, his, his wife, and his family because he owed them all to God. So let me go back to my original question. Suzanne said God gave us free will. He gave us, you know, he offers grace. What happens if you're raised in a culture in which you're encouraged to believe man has no free will or that he's predestined to damnation or that the things that are going to make him happy are security, possessions, and his family. Then what happened, and I'm asking this really seriously, then how well do we deal with evil and why? Because Suzanne was saying, what's the problem? Fred's asking, what's the problem? So let me put it that, what's the problem then? Yvonne couldn't come around to believing in God, and to believe in God meant there would have been supernatural things, the devil and it's only when he encounters the devil that all those things are brought to a head. But let me go back to the question. What happens if you live in a world in which God's denied, free will is denied, or if God is exist, does exist, um, he's preordained things, um, and in which the most important things are security, comfort, and your family? Then how well do we deal with evil? What happens? It can be devastating. Flesh <laughs> that out, Nikki. Go ahead. What? Well, 
I mean, when any of those things are taken away, it can be devastating. If that's what rules you, what drives you, and then you, you know, your possessions or whatever are taken away, if that's what, where your, you know, your foundation is, and then it's taken away, it's devastating. And then what? You're depraved and there's no hope. There's no chance for redemption. So what's the answer? They're wrong. <laughs> I don't know. No, no. Here, stop. Just take this. Take this the way you set it up. Um, if God's given us everything, and those things are taken from us, then what do we do? Well, I don't know. I mean, He gives us grace. And that can't be taken away, right? For anybody who holds it, I would think, yeah. Right. Right. But if you don't hold it, then I, you become despair and hopeless. Yeah. Last night, Suzanne, see, I, I think I told you, we've been watching The Hobbit again and... Um, it was interesting to me that if, if you guys have watched this, if, if you haven't, just bear with me for a minute, that there are a number of battle scenes, and in a couple of battle scenes, right when everything looks ble or desperate, you know, it's all going. Um, it's only when these men completely give themselves, when they enter into these battles with these demonic, really demonic forces in both the Hobbit and the it's only when they fight them fully and are willing to risk their lives to give everything that suddenly grace comes at, at that moment. And so it seems to be one of the things, or at least in Tolkien, and there, I don't think there's anything new because Christ makes that clear himself. He says, unless you give up everything and you know, die to yourself. And I think what happens is, is, is if we make anything, how to put this, if we hold death in ransom to anything we want in the world, our families, our wealth, um, then we've already lost. I mean, we've given in because um, those things have a power over us greater than any God could offer us. So um, it's only when we make any of those things greater than God that we put ourselves at risk. If we're at, at some point, if we, if we're in a position to lose those, if if we, if whatever we do um, doesn't put God first in, and I'm and I'm saying this, the the answer is despair. Despair me, despair without hope. It's from French. Despair. So, to to despair means to be without God, to turn from Him. So in any situation in which we're faced with any of the things that we value, um, we're faced with that. Um, short of that, we've given our attachment to those things a power over us greater than God. And if there's an evil in the world, we've given an evil, I mean, whatever, a chance to work on us, to tempt us. to. Um, so it seems to me, I mean, this is just nothing but what the tradition of the church teaches all the time, that... 
our whole struggle is to learn to give up our life, to fight for these things, to try to do what we believe is, um, God wants, and to risk our lives knowing that we may lose them and that we may lose the things that we love, but if we don't, we're going to lose them anyway. I mean, we're going to we're going to make them, we're going to give them a power over us that they shouldn't have. I think, I mean, that's partly my answer to Fred's question, that one of the reasons uh, we don't do well with evil is because we're not willing to give up things. Um, the whole, I mean, I've been saying this for ages, the whole task is to order our loves, to learn um, to love things the way we should, to put things away that have they ha we give them a power over the over us by the power we give them. It's only when we turn away from them and die to ourselves, you know, to live for God, that we can know a peace. And that peace can often come at an awful price. We may lose the things we love, but you so know that's how you, so huh. So how would you? Um, can you all, can you all hear Suzanne? Yeah, I can. Good. So how would you um, work that out with? Othello. I mean, he doesn't. What does he give more um, value to that he's not willing to give up? I don't see that. He's he doesn't. He's in some ways like Billy Budd. He he does not recognize evil. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's an innocence to him. Um, I don't see him giving, you know, great power to reputation, wealth, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I do, but I do. Um, but go ahead. He just doesn't recognize evil in Iago, just like Billy Budd right. refuses to recognize evil Clagger. in Claggart, <clears throat> that guy who tried to trick him. Um, so why do we do that? What what keeps us from recognizing evil? Wait, can we go? Can did you all hear Suzanne's question? Yeah, we we yeah. got we we got only a few minutes here. Um, somebody, can anybody look at um, Othello as an example of the question that she's asking? I mean, what her question was: What do you do with that? I'm not sure how to. Why don't we recognize evil? Okay, in Othello's case. I mean, here, here's part of the interesting thing. No, I, I don't think. Nobody can read Othello and come out of it and not be more aware of evil. One of the values of what Shakespeare's doing is try to help us get beyond Othello. No? Because Othello doesn't see it. He has no clue about what Iago's doing. Nobody in that book does. And, that, and by the way, <laughs> that's the commercial regime. It's the one that I've been talking about. Wealth, prosperity, family. Um, so one answer is <laughs> read poetry. I mean, good poetry. But in, in, Othello's, in Othello's case, I mean, what she said is, so what do we do with that? Can anybody answer that? <clears throat> Why doesn't he recognize evil? What's in the way for him? Because he finally does at the end. Every, all of us do. Po poetry helps us not to be susceptible to what overwhelms Othello and brings him down. And that's our regime. You sound like a Jesuit. <laughs> say again? What do you say? You sound like a Jesuit. <laughs> <laughs> Probably am at heart, Mark. God, I hope not. 
Oh boy, I would, I, because I believe that it's interesting. You should, because John Galton, who's a dear, dear friend, grew up with Father Fessy, who's the publisher of uh, or the founder of Ignatius Press. There are lots of things you can say bad against the Jesuit, but not to see the good in the Jesuit. I think, you know, all orders tend to corrupt Franciscans, Jesuits, but at the heart of the founders was Christ, in one form or another. Yeah. Um, Still waiting on the good things Jesuits have done, so maybe maybe, maybe, maybe it'll come around someday. <laughs> I'm praying for you all the time. Here, let, let me let me just offer a, a, a brief response, and then we've got to we've got to um, stop this in a second. But it's interesting because it, it, she said not honor. It seems to me a couple of things are going wrong with Othello. First of all, he's an initiate. He's just come into the Catholic Church. He's just been recently baptized. He has no experience of evil. I mean, in a, in a, in a little bit of in a little bit of a sense, hold. He 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 he's a warrior. He fights bad guys. Mm-hmm. With a tribal sense, he's a warrior. Um, spiritual evil, not a clue. He, he he comes into a regime which is defined by the way in which people use their intellects, resourcefulness, cunning, sharpness, entrepreneurship. Those are things that define the modern commercial regime, man or and woman. He has no sense of evil. What he does bring into that regime is a powerful sense of honor. Which is appropriate to, I mean, if you think Achilles, Odysseus, all the men we've looked at, Dante in the beginning. Um, if they're, I mean, if men are given to any fault, I mean, I want, there's, you know, men and women are, it's honor. The dishonor for a man, if he takes honor seriously, there's almost nothing more important to Othello than his sense of honor. He's a warrior. You don't want to be dishonored. He's a warrior. He's like Achilles. He's like all the warriors we've, in Chaucer's world as well. Um, look at the virtuous Henry V, the, vir- the uh, Aeneas, Achilles comes to it, but Othello's a warrior. He cares more about his honor. What does Iago, so what does evil play on in him? Honor. Your wife has dishonored you. When he's faced with that, he can't see anything. He has no clue. I mean, the, the, the fact that I mean, when you watch it, I, 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 I mean, I think most people are a little bit dismayed. Why didn't he confront him? Why didn't he, you know, confront Desdemona better than he did? Or, you know, I mean, there's lots of things he could have done. We're watching a man who has no sense of spiritual evil, who, who cares, whose sense of his own honor is something evil can work with. So one of the answers, I mean, if you take a, you know, Othello for me, is that evil tends to work precisely on those things in which we're most vulnerable. The things we love most are the things that will be where we will be more sorely tested. And I don't think I'm saying anything you all don't know. Still doesn't answer why he doesn't see it. Sorry? Because, Doc, he's blind. I mean, I just, I mean, he, he's blinded by it. But here, I, we've got it, because I'm trying to hold to our time. Any last comments or... Before we go, Fred, I'm sorry. I really wanted to turn. I think next week when we start, I'm going to turn to you and ask where you'd like to go. Because no, you, because all your all of your, you know, your paragraphs were so thoughtful and so well framed. But any any last comments about any of this or or concerns that you guys would like us to take us take up in the next week or two? I've been loving just. 
because it reminds me of um, the just some things about some verses I've studied, you know, when the context was larger, just in the Bible of where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Right. So you better right. watch it. Start, you know, give yes. weight to your treasure. And then, um, you know, and then other things like the, um, there's more joy in heaven for one lost soul who's found his way than for all 99 other little right. sheep who have never gone astray. Yep, yep. And I thought, whoa. That that um, you, the, this whole discussion the past couple of weeks has been driving that home to me, and I really appreciate that. And it also makes me want to you know listen to you know rock and roll like Led Zeppelin and the, you know that yellow blinded by the light. You know everybody's got this weakness and and you know I just it makes me want to parallel uh, the music. Uh, the natural music to the natural man and the human in this. Wow! Human, wow! You know. Yeah. Um, be careful, Jolie. We may have to have a dance night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> by the way, by the way, just I'm so glad God sparks come out of nowhere when you guys open up. I I so believe that. You guys probably won't remember this, but um, remember when Ishmael goes on board to sign up on the Pequod? Bildad and Pequod are the owners, and they're bargaining with him. They're making the same bargain that the captain did in the Jonah story. In the Jonah story in the Bible, the captain took advantage of Jonah because he knew he was fleeing from something. And, right. and, and Melville plays that up. I mean, Melville is so sharp in the Bible. Anyway, when, when uh, Ishmael is signing up, it's Bildad, I think, who's making out his letter, ledger, and he's reading the passage from Do Not Lay Up Your Treasure. And what the two of them are doing is taking advantage of Ishmael in order to increase their own treasure because they're 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 capitalists I mean they're trying to make money you know and they're so and they make money by exploiting whales by killing whales so that I mean Melville knows exactly what's going on when he uses that passage lay up your treasure because Bildad thinks he's very pious he's very religious his heart is where it should be sort of. he's screwing Ishmael <laughs> they're killing whales they're taking advantage of everybody in the crew um, so it was a wonderful, wonderful quote, um, Jolie. That's where, where, where are our treasures? Um, in what way do they get in the way of our dealing with evil? I mean, since that's that was the thrust of Fred or goes to Fred's question in some ways. Okay, next week there's no review. Next week we start out with these questions and any others you guys have. We can pick up this question with evil, um, um, whatever you guys would like to do, okay? It's more in your hands. I mean, I, I really would like to hear your concerns and, you know, you, certainly for me, one of, the, one of the grave concerns in all of this for me is, in what way have these works strengthened our faith? What do they do to help us live our faith? Um, I, I hope we can get around to that somewhere, but anyway, okay, let's stop. It's good to see you all again. Um, no reading, or, or at least, um, except for those who have not read and who have some reading to do. <laughs> uh, Tracy, it's good to see you. Jolie, I, finally, we get your, we, we get your face here. 
anyway, you guys um, have a good week, and all of you stay safe. Um, keep each other. Keep. Let's all keep each other in our prayers. Um, I'm really grateful for your prayers, and you're in ours. So, okay. You guys have a good week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry you didn't get the prayers on this.